L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys, and welcome back to another new episode of Uni Therapy Podcast. My name is Kat, and I am the host of this podcast. If you're new, I am a therapist, a licensed therapist that lives in Nashville and works in Nashville who decided that she wanted to have conversations over, you know, the interwebs about some of the things that happen in my office. And before we get going, I want to just remind everybody that though I am a therapist, this is not therapy, and therapy is something that happens with you and another person that you're in a relationship with. And I just can't do that over a podcast. But if I could, that would be kind of cool. But just want to remind you guys that this is really a platform that I use to help get you guys thinking and moving to engage in that stuff in your own life. And I can only do so much with the podcast. With all of that, I would like to introduce to you the guest that we have today. It's been a couple weeks without guests. And that's been really fun. You guys know that I love to just like talk about things I'm passionate about without having to stop. But I had a really good conversation with somebody named Holly Christine Hayes. And she is one, a gem of a human who is doing incredible work in the world. She founded something called the Sanctuary Project which is a jewelry nonprofit that employs women survivors of trafficking, violence, and addiction in Austin, Texas. And she's also a survivor herself and has a beautiful story of redemption and healing that she talks about with me that I'm so grateful for. And I was really excited to have this conversation because a lot of the times the things that I'm talking about on here, I know a lot about, but this is an area that I just don't and I haven't done a lot of research on and I haven't spent a lot of time looking into and I am so grateful to have people like Holly who are accessible and help us understand what really is going on because I think you guys might hear in this conversation, I was surprised to hear about the truth about what sex trafficking really is and what it can really look like in the United States. So she's awesome. If you want to follow her, you can follow her at at Holly Christine Hayes, and then you can follow the Sanctuary Project at at Sanctuary underscore project. They 
have beautiful stuff and I can't wait to get on there and get some for myself. And as always, if you guys have any questions or feedback, let me know while you are following Holly and the Sanctuary Project, go ahead and follow me at cat.defada and the podcast at Podcast. And if you have questions, you can send them to Catherine at unitherapypodcast.com. I hope you enjoy this. And here is my conversation with Holly. Holly, I am so grateful that you're here today and so excited to talk to you about so many things. But I think what I want to start talking with you about, which will probably lead into a million other conversations, is the Sanctuary Project, which is a company that you founded and started with a very specific purpose and passion behind. And so can you just take us through the beginnings of that and just tell us the story and the journey around Sanctuary Project? So I started Sanctuary Project in February of 2018. And I had come out of a life of trafficking, violence, and addiction 20 years ago and had really spent a lot of years mentoring other girls and volunteering in in anti-trafficking community and in the recovery community and saw that there was this gap in terms of care around reintegration and employment. So I would see girls coming out of incarceration or um, beginning their recovery journey or coming out of a sex trafficking situation and getting into a safe house, but really having trouble making that next step and getting that first job. And a lot of times it was because the resume was a mess, you know, <laughs> like yeah. the, there or there was no resume. There'd never been any legal work. And then, you know, self-esteem had been completely wrecked through so much trauma, you know, and then just the, the very area of work itself had been exploited and really uh, messed with through through sex trafficking or uh, through other traumas that that women had suffered and and for myself that was an issue even transitioning into meaningful and dignified employment so what I wanted to create was a place where women could cry at work <laughs> we, we like to tell them that first and foremost and where they could really rebuild their lives and rebuild their resumes in in a community with other women who were coming out of the same situations and who understood and so in some ways it's this combination of a work place in a therapeutic community because we're gathering together with shared traumas and shared life experiences, but we're also doing work. We're also making jewelry. We're a jewelry line. So we're producing jewelry and selling jewelry and marketing jewelry. And, and so it's fun because they're learning all these skills in the meantime, while they're in a therapeutic community. You know, that's so interesting to me because I started my work in a treatment center where I worked with a lot of addiction and the difference that I, I might've seen, but I also didn't always see this is a lot of the, the clients I had were coming from somewhat affluent families and, and, and had resources, but some of them didn't. And the reintegration back after they would go to sober living, they would do all the right things. Like that's what broke my heart. I would have these clients. This is one thing I believe nobody just wakes up and is like, I'm going to become an addict right. and <laughs> ruin my life. Yeah. There's right? always like, something, something else there. Happen. Yeah. Like, yes. And then they would have this like zest for life again. They would listen to every recommendation I have. And then they would get stuck because maybe they're in their 30s or their 40s or it doesn't matter what age, but they are trying to get back into a culture and a life that isn't really open to Mm -hmm. them based on the trajectory they had had before that. This is kind of off topic, but that's something that gets me going when people talk about like homelessness and stuff like that about they just need to get a job. And I'm like, if you realized 
how hard that is. Yeah. It's not always a lack of trying. Yeah. And I mean, and I don't think that's off topic at all. Right. I mean, it's because they're all so integrated and I love that you brought up that sometimes they're coming from an affluent background or have, have had access to resources. Sometimes they're not, but it kind of almost doesn't matter. I mean, I came from resources. I, I grew up in a good family, but it didn't matter because so many years of trauma had really wrecked that life path in so many ways. And so even when there's access to education and resources, there's still that emotional block from how do I move forward and just function as a normal adult in society? And you mentioned like it's a place where people are allowed to cry at work, which like, thank God, because (laughs) I think there's a huge, and I get it in some areas, but in some areas I don't, there's this huge separation of like, we have to come in and be these strong people and we can't have any emotions. And it's, you don't know what anybody's going through and you don't know what has brought them into work that day. And to not be able to actually feel things and have to shut things down, it's easy to be said, but when you really know somebody's story, it makes so much more sense. So to have the ability to show up and not to have to hold everything together, like if you're having a hard day, like it's okay to have a hard day versus if you have a hard day, you're fired. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it is in society, there's all this stigma around it, right? I mean, you don't want to go into the bank and have your bank teller like breaking down and crying and telling you that she's, that she's a week in recovery and that she was trafficked. And you know, you don't want that really like society has to hold it together in some ways. But if we can create communities where it's expected that there's going to be that reaction to life, um, then I think that provides those reentry points. I remember when I was first getting sober, I started working at at this shoe shine stand that employed people in recovery. And it was known in the community, I was in San Francisco, and it was known in that community that that shoe shine stand employed people who were oftentimes early in recovery, sometimes even later in recovery. And, and so people coming in to get a shoe shine probably knew that. And so if the person shining their shoes was crying all of a sudden, they were not surprised, right? They were like, okay, I know what I'm in for. I get it. Yeah. And it was a place where I learned and saw that model that there was an opportunity to have employers that understood and to have a group of, of coworkers that understood. And there were days where we had to say, okay, like I need to leave and go to a meeting because I'm not doing well. And then there were other days where we got to just thrive in that mm-hmm. environment because there wasn't that pressure. And I really learned self-esteem and work ethic in that environment. Oh, yeah and met so many interesting people because people were coming in and and we were shining their shoes. And all day long, I was taking these messy shoes and making them beautiful. And so I got to see, you know, I kind Mm -hmm. of got to see how I was doing that in my own life as well, like taking taking this mess and making it beautiful. And I learned so much about how to be a safe place in that environment. I love that. Since you mentioned your story, I want to know a little bit about is the difference between what people think sex trafficking is versus what it might really be. Because I will say from my own experience, I'm not an expert at this, like I said, but growing up, I always thought like sex trafficking is something that was like, what was that movie like Taken or something like that? That's what I thought it was. I didn't realize that it could be all around me here. And then it doesn't always look I don't want to use that the word extreme, but that's the word that's coming to my head. But it doesn't always look that way. Yeah. And I think that's really important to unpack because so many people have this preconceived notion, either that it looks like the movie Taken or that it's something that happens over there, like in Southeast Asia or in Africa, you know, in places where that are known for sort of sex tourism. But basically the definition of sex trafficking is someone committing a commercial sex act through force, fraud, or coercion. So what that means is that if you have uh, someone who is in a 
in economic instability or suffering from an addiction. And then someone comes along and exploits that and says, hey, I know how I can help you. We can start selling you. And and that person doesn't really feel like they have any other choice. Sometimes it's called a pimp or, you know, or, or a lover boy or Romeo pimp, or, you know, mm. sometimes it's a boyfriend. Sometimes it's a family member. Sometimes it's a mm. friend. But if there's someone pulling the strings behind the scenes and collecting money from that person, they're not keeping all their money and they're not free to live wherever they want and do whatever they want. That is the definition of sex trafficking. And so a lot of what we see as, or might consider sort of typical prostitution, we have to actually ask the question, what's going on behind the scenes? Is this person completely choosing this out of their own free will? And is this person keeping 100% of the money they're making? And did no one else suggest or manipulate them into this? But what we have is a, in America is um, an imbalance in supply and demand for sex, for commercial sex. There are not as many willing prostitutes as there are men wanting to purchase prostitutes. And so what that creates is exploitation. And anywhere there's an imbalance of supply and demand for sex, you're going to have exploitation. And so I think there is this misunderstanding that it would all be kidnapping because the path of least resistance for a trafficker is not actually to kidnap someone from a good family. It's to find that girl who is already suffering from an addiction that they know they can manipulate with drugs, to find that girl who's coming out of the foster care system and has nowhere else to go who they know they can manipulate by providing um, basic, basic needs, housing, food, shelter, all those things, or to find that person that they can manipulate through a relationship and ultimately get them to, um, to perform sexual commercial sex acts for their benefit. When you use the word manipulation, I hear that a lot of times whoever is engaging or is being sex trafficked doesn't fully know that that's happening. Yeah. And that was the case for me, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So can you talk about what that looked like and how you kind of like woke up to what was happening? Yeah. I mean, my situation was really interesting because I, I had had some sexual abuse in my childhood. So I already had a sort of warped sense of my sexual identity. Yeah. Um, I already had gotten the message that that's what made me valuable. I was already um, promiscuous from a young age. And mm -hmm. so there was, there was already a lot of kind of sexual dysfunction in my life. I had also been attracted to violent abusive relationships from a very early time. Mm -hmm. And so when my trafficker came along, it felt very comfortable <laughs> because it became violent very quickly. Um, there was sexual perversion there and that felt comfortable for me. Um, it wasn't something I was not used to. It wasn't something that raised any red flags. If anything, it helped me feel comfortable like, oh, okay, he could maybe love me because he doesn't judge me for my my past promiscuity. And then he was also an addict and I was an addict. And so there was this like commonality there as well. And it seemed like he really understood my needs and my desires and he acted like he loved me. And so um, about it, it, the relationship became violent very quickly. And then I learned there were other women very quickly. So that set up this sense of competition where I wanted to be his favorite. I wanted to be the best one. And so by the time he suggested that he start selling me to other men, he had so manipulated the situation to make me feel like that was my value that when he suggested it, it was like, wow, he must think I'm so valuable. And and like you were chosen. Yes, like I was chosen. Yeah. Like I was so special that men would pay for me and that he could take care of me. And all I had to do was do this thing. 
And it was, um, you know, I really, if someone asked me what was going on, I would have said, well, he's my boyfriend and he's helping me out because I didn't think I could take care of myself without him. I didn't think I was capable of paying my own rent and feeding myself and, you know, and um, making my own way in the world. And here he offered this sort of easy out of, well, you can live with me and I'll take care of you and I'll keep you high and I'll feed you. And all you have to do is this and I'll collect the money, but you'll be taken care of. And so there was this sense of security really that came from it. And this sense of this man is taking care of me. And I now, um, I go into the jails often and I often meet with traffickers, even women who have, who have been traffickers. And that's a lot of the narrative they're even telling themselves is, oh, I'm just taking care of them. You know, and that's like yeah. this, this lie that they're sort of telling the women and that they're telling themselves too. Like, I'm taking care of you. All you have to do is do this. I keep the money, but I keep a roof over your head. It, you know, it was years before I would have identified as a trafficking survivor. I identified as a former sex worker long before I was able to identify as a trafficking survivor. And it wasn't until someone pointed out to me when I identified as a former sex worker that um, they asked, you know, they really started digging and they were like, was there, did you never have a pimp? Was there no one pulling the strings behind the scenes? And I was like, well, yeah, my boyfriend, but oh wait, <laughs> you know, yeah. did you keep all your money? Well, no, I mean, my boyfriend did, but he was, and then it was like, oh wait. And they're like, so he was, you guys were in like an exclusive relationship. Well, no, he had other women, but, and it sort of started to unravel for me where I was like, oh my gosh, this was trafficking. And, and my situation, because I'd seen the movie taken and it didn't look like that, I had that, the, that, those false narratives in my mind as well. And so when I realized that was my situation, it made me really passionate about finding those other women in America who had similar situations, but, but weren't necessarily identifying as a trafficking survivor because they, they weren't as familiar with the definition as they probably need to be. What does that do, I mean, in your life and, and maybe the things that you've seen in women that you've worked with, what does that do to your, like, almost like your sense of self and I don't know if there's shame wrapped around in that to move from a place of he was taking care of me, I was choosing this to like, oh, I wasn't in control or things weren't. For you, is that a, like a, oh, I can release some something or was it like, oh my gosh, my life is not what I thought it was? I think it was probably for me personally, a little more, oh my gosh, my life is not what I thought it was. Yeah. Because the narrative I told myself is that I was in control. I remember even when I started stripping at 18, the, the girl who recruited me into that was like, this mm -hmm. is how you can take control of your sexuality. You're in charge. You yeah. decide, you take their money. Um, this this is, makes you powerful. And so in some ways, there's a lot of, of sex workers out there in the world who have this narrative of, this is what makes me powerful. I mm -hmm. take the money. I decide. Um, even that, like, remember that old movie, Pretty Woman? It was like, I say yeah. who, I say when, I say how much. Like, there is this narrative that you tell yourself of, like, I'm an empowered woman. I'm choosing this, and I, and this is this is me taking control of my life. And so when I realized and really started to come to grips with how much exploitation had been involved and how much I really was not in control of those choices, I think that's when the shame came for me a bit because it was like, well, gosh, wow, like, am I that foolish? Am I that stupid or whatever to have been manipulated in that way? And I see that with a lot of the women I work with. And I think that's why women have trouble identifying as a trafficking survivor. It's, um, it's far easier for women to identify as domestic violence survivors or as addicts where it's very clear that's what's going on. Most of the women I think I work with, I have to kind of talk them through, well, this was trafficking and this is the definition. And then 
even, you know, there, there are some women who, who don't choose to identify that way. They, they choose to, you know, sort of keep that identification of no, it was prostitution. No, it was, I was complicit in it. I was choosing it too. And that's fine. I think whatever, whatever we need to believe about it in order to kind of keep our sanity as we work through the traumas. I'm 20 years out for a girl that's a year out. That's really different, different. right? Yeah. And because I was thinking that that must be so tough. And I don't know the right terms to use either, but I don't know how women are, are, are rescued from these situations, especially if they're like you, where you're like, no, this is for me yeah. and I'm in charge. It's like on the outside, it's like, I want to rescue this person and pull them out of this, but pulling them out of it would force them to r- realize and and look at some really painful stuff that I don't know if I would be able to handle that. Yeah, I, I dislike the word rescue in some ways for okay, that reason, okay. because I would not have known I needed to be rescued from my trafficking situation. Right. I did know I needed to be rescued from my addiction. And so in some ways, it's so much easier for me to find the women to work with within an, a recovery community or an, or coming mm-hmm. out of addiction. I also, most of the women I, I work with, we meet in the jail and that's a great place to intersect them mm-hmm. as well because you know they've already in a sense been rescued. They've been separated yeah. from their trafficker and they've had consequences now. And the consequences fell on them, even though there was someone pulling the strings behind the scenes, they've right. been arrested for prostitution or they've been arrested for holding drugs for their trafficker. And so in a lot of ways, they're paying the penalty for an exploitation that happened to them. And there's this opportunity for me to interact their lives and start to talk to them about what actually happened and for them to sort of have their eyes opened in a gentle way and in a really safe mm-hmm. place where they've been rescued, yeah. right? Like in quotes, by, by being arrested, they've been separated from that trafficking situation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, guns blazing, going into a hotel room and trying to pull girls out that are, they just yeah. think you're taking them away from their boyfriend. Right. So, you know, what a lot of the, the homes for girls coming out of sex trafficking are for underage girls. And what happens when an underage girl is arrested for prostitution is she's immediately sent to one of these um, homes to recover from sex trafficking because any commercial sex act with a minor is considered trafficking. And so, yeah. so you have all these, these homes for these young girls and they just end up running away. You know, that's, it's a chronic issue we mm-hmm. see is that these girls are just running away from these homes because they didn't want to be rescued. They yeah. thought they were having fun. They thought it was their boyfriend. They thought they were in control. And so it's, this is a, a lot of the issues we see that a lot of, that society doesn't really fully understand. I think they think anyone who is being held in this way and manipulated in this way, of course, they would want to be rescued. Of course, they would want to be pulled out, but it's just not that simple. I think mm-hmm. there's so much Stockholm syndrome that happens. There's so much um, confusion yeah. about it and there's, and it, and it's all knit to your sexuality, which is so all encompassing and, yeah. and is connected to your heart and your soul and your mind. And, you know, mm-hmm. and there's, so there's so much going on that it's hard for people to understand. Yeah. And for you, was it, it sounds like it was more of like, I realized I needed help in one area of my life and that was addiction. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's really common, right? Because it's so easy to hit bottom with an addiction. And really, if I look at my trafficking, it was just a symptom, you know, and so, and for so many women, trafficking is just another symptom of an addiction that's made their lives out of control. So even today, when I look back on my life and what led to all those horrific 
traumas and circumstances, the addiction was at the core of it. Because without that addiction sort of driving um, my choices, where I was, my circumstances, none of those other things would have happened. And of course, if you go further without childhood sexual trauma, probably there wouldn't have been an addiction. But but that addiction was the was the primary thing I knew I needed to treat. What did that look like for you? Because what what we know and what most of our listeners know from listening is nobody can be, which I think is I, I like the idea of not rescuing somebody or not using that word or even like the fact that they don't want to be rescued is that also in all of our stuff, it doesn't have to be addiction. It could be literally anything that we're doing. You're not going to change the behavior or change the thing until you want to. Yeah. We can't force anybody, which is so hard. It was a very hard lesson as a therapist to learn. <laughs> but for sure. you, where did you come to a place of like, this is not working for me anymore? Like what everybody's bottom is different. But what does that look like for you? For me, it, it was a lot of years of consequences just piling up. You know, in the beginning, my drinking and drug use was fun. And then it was fun with consequences. And then it was just consequences. And, and a lot of it was linked to that, that relationship with my trafficker because I kept getting drunk and high and not showing up for the jobs he was lining up for me and he ended up kicking me out. So then I ended up homeless. And so that homelessness for me was really what brought me to my knees. Um, you know, but it was before that there were arrests, you know, multiple arrests and multiple violent relationships, multiple abortions that were pretty heartbreaking, you know, just like consequence after consequence after consequence. And um, really a picture of a life that I knew was so out of control. And I tried to kind of manage it a little bit. And, you know, I would like, okay, I'm going to stop doing crystal meth, but then the drinking would take off or like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to manage it by smoking weed all the time. But then I'd like, then I'd get really anxious and need to drink. And so I would, I just kept trying to throw different substances at it and try to figure out what combination would make me feel comfortable in my skin. And so for me, my, my bottom really came after, after I, I was kicked out and ended up homeless. And I was on the floor of a, a public bathroom and just crying. And my story is really similar to so many people in recovery. But um, I said, God help me. Didn't believe in God. No experience mm. with God. But that night I met someone who was in recovery, who had been in AA for three years and was sober three years and took me to my first recovery meeting. And I've been sober since that day. And that was February 11th of 2001. So it wow. was like massive radical transformation, just ultimately like, I mean, just like removed from me really in that moment. And, and yet without the 12 step recovery community that I'm still a part of today, yeah. 20 years later, I know I wouldn't have been able to maintain that. Right. I do believe that that sobriety was a gift that was given to me in a moment, but I also believe it's a continual surrender and action that I've, that I've chosen to take because I know what the consequences looked like yeah. and I'm not willing to go back there. That's amazing. 20, like that's congratulations. Thank that's you. Like incredible. It's pretty cool. Hey guys, Kat here. And I have something very important to talk to you guys about. Now I know you're used to hearing me talk about therapy and how important it can be for you and how transformative it can be for you in your life. But if you're somebody who's tried therapy and it just hasn't done the trick or you just need a little extra boost, I think I found the next best thing. And the next best thing 
might just be cozy earth in their bamboo sheets and their bamboo pajamas. It feels like you are stepping into a buttery, cozy, warm, and cool hug all at the same time. And that's just their pajamas. Don't even get me started on their sheets. As soon as I touched them, I said, okay, we're changing the sheets right now. And the bonus is they come in this really cute travel tote so you can take your sheets with you wherever you go. Elevate your summer getaway with Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding and loungewear, ensuring the comfort of home wherever you roam. We're all in luck because you can discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. Visit CozyEarth.com and use our code UNEED at checkout to get 35% off. Yes, 35% off. And let them know that we sent you Unique Therapy after you check out. L-A-S-I-K LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I wonder some of, because I'm assuming that your story does stand in line with a lot of other people's stories of the sobriety is one thing, right? How did you integrate back into the world after going through all that stuff that that was your life and your identity and the way you coped and the view of yourself, the view of the world, like getting sober is one part. And then I have don't even know how to ask that question, yeah. but like, how did that happen? Like, how did you develop into this like human you are now, which you're, you were always that person, but to know that person and show that person off more. Uh, you're going to like this answer. Okay. Ther- <laughs> therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and a combination of, uh, of a lot of good therapy over the years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I started in behavior modification, which is not a bad place to start. I wish I'd started mm-hmm. in EMDR because that's mm-hmm. where like the real transformation for me mm-hmm. has happened. But yeah, a, a, a combination of, of time behavior modification, EMDR, spiritual life. I have a spiritual life, recovery community, surrounding myself with others who have, who've been through the same 
stuff I've been through, meditation. I'm a big fan of like, try it all, find what works because right. over the years and, and over the, the years, what's worked has shifted too. Right. I mean, early on, I needed to just like go to AA meetings, you know, I needed mm-hmm. to just like show do it, up. just do yeah, the thing, just show up, sit down in a seat, do what my sponsor told me to do, you know, yeah. and I needed to be in meetings every day. I had to, um, I needed a social life that was separate from my addiction. And that was where I found that I was young. I was 21 years old when I got sober. And so I ended up in the young people's community and, um, and found friendships and found a safe place. I found that shoe shine stand that Mm -hmm. I, um, that I talked about as, as sort of a first safe job. Mm -hmm. And from there, and actually at that shoe shine stand, met someone who worked in real estate, who recruited me and I ended up working in real estate. And that was a really nice, flexible job. So I could still take care of my self and still be in therapy, be in meetings, be doing all the things I needed to do. I have fought for my recovery over the years. You know, um, it, I don't think health just happens accidentally. And I kept seeing symptoms of unhealth, mostly in my relationships that drove me to various bottoms over the years. Right. You know, it was like, how am I still in an abusive relationship? Okay. I need more work now. How am, why am I still making these self-destructive choices. Okay. I need more work. Why am I still feeling suicidal and anxious? Okay. I need to do more work. And so every time I start to notice old stuff cropping back up, I know there's just another layer of work to do more work to do deeper to Mm go more to unravel more to unpack. And I'm, I'm just a huge fan of just try everything and keep Mm -hmm. going. Keep going, which I love. I love that you said that because a lot of people will ask me, well, when, when is this done? Like, when are we done with this? And I'm like, we're never done because you're continuing to live life. And I truly believe what happens a lot of times is we as humans, we're somewhat egocentric, especially when we're younger, we are living in this world that's very broken. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of mess and messed up stuff in the world that we live in. And what happens is we we engage and we bump up against the messed up stuff. And because we're egocentric, we make it about us yeah. and not about the world. So it's we're messed up versus the world is messed up. And it just becomes part of our story if we're not continuing to learn about who we are and what things mean. Because the part where you said, why am I still finding myself in these types of relationships? Based on what you've shared with your story so far, like you are attracted to what you knew and that makes sense like also our stories show us what to expect about people in the world and if we don't uncover your story and figure out okay what was real what was not real what was about you was what wasn't about you then you're going to think that that's how relationships work yeah right and it's almost comfortable to be in that until it's not yeah until it's not and and that's a really good point too and i think i i've taken these breaks from therapy or treatment over the years too, that have been really healthy because I've been able to sort of get a temperature gauge on where am I at? Like, who am I drawn to? What do my friendships look like? What do my relationships look like? What does my family relationship look like? How do I feel emotionally? What are, what shames am I holding on to? What fears am I holding on to? And taking those breaks too, to, to just live and do self-reflection and self-assessment. And, and then, you know, and then when it hurts again, <laughs> to go back and, and mm-hmm. fix it. 
And it gives you some autonomy too of like, oh, look at what I have done. Yeah. And I don't, that doesn't always have to be my story. And I, I can do things and recognize things on my own. I also wonder, I love this, talking about this stuff too, of, of you mentioning like God was never a thing for me. Faith was never a thing for me. And I fully believe that's a very personal experience and whatever your spiritual and, and faith story is that gets to be yours. I don't think there's one right way to do it for everybody, but I do believe in recovery and I could totally argue that everybody in some aspect of their lives are finding recovery from something yeah, because I we agree. live in a world that is very addictive based. It's how our minds are. But I do believe in our recovery journeys and stories. It's important to have some kind of spiritual life. So can you talk about how yours was helpful in not just your recovery process, but just in building the life that you love? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, mine was a really interesting journey because having not grown up with any sort of idea of God or, you know, I grew up in, in the San Francisco Bay area where, I mean, there was some sort of like new agey stuff around me that was like mind over matter or something like that, you know, but then I said this prayer, like on accident, sort of on the floor of this public bathroom. Mm -hmm. And that night met someone who got me into recovery program and been sober since that day. So I had to ask like, who is this God thing that I like said that to? And then mm -hmm. everything changed. Like I kind of had to wrestle with this because it was like, this is my experience. I know I had other points where I had resolve and I couldn't do it. I know there were points where the consequences were bad enough that I should have stopped and I couldn't do it. But right. then for some reason I said this prayer thing and it and like it happened. So then I spent yeah. eight years trying to figure out like what spiritual life or what God that the world has offered mm -hmm. um, matches my experience. And kind of like I was saying earlier, I tried everything, right? I was mm -hmm. like, well, what is, what does Buddhism say? Like, who is God there? What does yoga say? What is, what does Oprah say? What does mm -hmm. the secret say? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what is, what does Judaism say? Um, what does Christianity say? And I, I, you know, for me, I landed on a faith and I'm a Christian today. And, and mm -hmm. that was not, that was actually the last one I tried. I mean, I guess it was mm -hmm. the last one I tried because it's the one that stuck, but, yeah. um, but it was the last one I thought to try because because Christians had never really been safe in my yeah. experience. But then when I actually dug into like, what is the spiritual life offering in terms of how I am able to connect to God, that was the one that worked for me. That was the one that felt like this helps me access a God that I believe could care about me. And I think that's where I needed to land in order to feel like I had a God on my side, a God that's with me as I, as I journey through life and journey through recovery, a God that's, that is um, concerned with the redemptive aspect of my story. Yeah. That was one of the pieces I knew I needed in a higher power. And in the recovery community, we talk really just about a higher power because you can make it anything. It can be a doorknob. It can be the ocean. Mm -hmm. It can be your grandmother. <laughs> you know, it can right. be... It just not as long as it's not alcohol. I remember asking, "Can it right. be a bottle of vodka?" And my sponsor was like, "Nope, that's nope. the one thing it can't be." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious! But yeah, I mean, for me, it was like, okay, well, what is the spiritual life that that a matches my experience? And that one did because it was like, okay, like this is a god that's powerful enough that would intervene in the life of a girl homeless and drunk on the floor of a public bathroom and give her a whole new life. 
And then this is a God that I can believe is with me and cares and, and can actually walk with me um, through this journey of recovery and transformation and, and bring hope and healing out of it. And so my faith today is, is central to my life. And yet in the work I do, I do not make it mandatory that they share my faith because I do think it's so important for people to find their own relationship with God and that find their a spiritual life that works for them. And there was a time when I had a spiritual life that, that worked for me for a bit when I was doing transcendental meditation and, and sort of just um, believing that God was like a loving being. And, and then I kind of outgrew that at one point, you know, and I was like, this isn't working anymore. I need something. I need, I need my God to be real and human. I need my God to be something I can connect with in a book or in a prayer or in a, Mm -hmm. in a worship environment or with other people that have the same God. And so I think that journey too, is really part of the recovery experience of finding that spiritual life that, that gives you the support you need to walk through life because we, we are going to hit bumps and trials and ultimately like your mental health and your spiritual health are all you have. Like that's it at the end of the day and hopefully some good relationships. And so make sure that that spiritual life is something that you can hold on to in those rocky times. And for me, over the last 12 years that I've been a Christian, it has been, and that's been really sweet and special for me and, and a place that I felt like I could go deeper with God. And that's not all, right? Like I right. also, <laughs> I, and I say this to Christians a lot because I think sometimes we can make the spiritual life, that's it. Like you just need to pray mm-hmm. it away. If you have anxiety, pray just pray it away. If you have, if you have depression, just get like, you know, deliverance prayer or something. And I, with any spirituality, I, I feel like that is not, that cannot be the full picture. There has to be aspects of relationship and therapeutic mental health doctors. Like I'm Mm -hmm. a big believer that like, you need, you need a therapist for your mental health. You need a doctor for your physical health and you need God for your spiritual health. And so, so I'm a big fan of, of even in the church talking about the, the fact that, that this spiritual life could not be my everything. I also need uh, my recovery community. I also need my, um, my therapist. I also need healthy relationships and physical healing when I need it and, and to do that work in a holistic way. That I appreciate that a lot because that does get misconstrued a lot and can be very painful for a lot of people. Absolutely. Because then it becomes, well, I'm not a good enough Christian. Right. Or why does God hate me? Because he's not healing this and I prayed about it. And healing can be in different ways and God can give us different things that we might think aren't from God, but they might be from God. Like your therapist might be from God. (laughs) So, but the other thing I was thinking about when you were talking about, you used the word like redemption. And I, and I wonder with the shame that surrounds, I mean, most people struggle with some aspect of shame as well in their lives, whether it is from addiction or from a, a sex trafficking situation or something like that. And for you, and maybe we'll end kind of on this, but how did you heal from the shame that could have taken over your life? And told you that, that that's you for the rest of your life and, and you're bad, which what shame tells us. How did you see that in you? What was helpful in that for you to remove almost like shield that keeps you from being free? And then how do you work with humans in um, a sanctuary project or wherever you are going into the jail or wherever? How do you offer hope from the shame to people? So much of my shame journey was really almost behavior modification, just acting differently, developing an ethic where I was living in a way that was that was healthy. And you know, I remember early on in the recovery journey learning the the phrase self-esteem comes from doing esteemable acts. 
And I found that to be true. You know, when I developed like a healthy sexual ethic and morality for myself that I could adhere to because I could make choices all of a sudden because I wasn't in my addiction and my alcoholism and having that make choices for me, the, the shame started to subside because I was no longer acting out in those ways. And then, you know, with even in, in the work environment, as I started to build a work ethic and, um, and have some success in my life, the shame of my past started to melt away because I had built a different narrative in my current life. The problem with that is it takes time and it takes making healthy choices over and over and over again, over a long course of Not life. Overnight. Right? So that, so it's easy to feel yeah. that over, you know, 20 years of <laughs> a new life. And I wish that there was a fast solution. I wish I could say like, you just, you know, take this pill and your shame is gone. Um, but I do think sometimes we just have to surrender to walking out a new life and watching as that new life unfolds into something healthy and beautiful. And, and, and then I think the, the other piece of it for me is now seeing today how everything about my life, my story, my past is being used to help others. And so as I give myself to others who are coming out of the same things and share my story and where I am today, I get to see that offer them hope. And so in some ways, when you're asking about what is the hope I have to offer, it's a life that's been transformed and I can model that for them. And I can model how does a woman who loves herself and loves her husband and loves her daughter dress and act and behave in the world? How does a woman who values her, her work identity show up for work and run a company? And so as I model that, I get to see them get hope. They're seeing that person who's just ahead of them. And the cool thing about Sanctuary Project is we have women kind of at every level of recovery. I'm, I'm 20 years out. My operations director's 13 years out. Our production manager's five years out. Our program manager's three and a half years out. There's women who are less, you know, have uh, less yeah. time, but they're seeing women at different phases of their recovery journey and seeing how their lives are so much better and so much richer. And so they can constantly look up to that woman just ahead of them and say, oh, when I get to that three-year journey, I'm going to be already maybe back in school and, you know, maybe have like a be living on my own. And gosh, when I get to five years, I'm going to have a, probably a healthy relationship. And when I get to 13 years, I could be an executive in a company. And when I get yeah. to 20 years, maybe I could be married with a, a family yeah. and running something. And so they have that hope all the time. And that is so cool because, and so powerful because what I believe is just because, and this is what you're saying, like just because something was your story, it doesn't mean it has to remain your story. It can yeah. be part of your story, but it doesn't ha you get to actually what you're doing is you're allowing women to create a new narrative for themselves and how cool is it because this is the other thing that meeting you off the street I would never know any of your story and yeah. that is how every human is people could even be our friends and it doesn't mean we know their whole story and what we do is we judge people's insides by their outsides yeah and that's really not fair to us because what it's I think a lot of times what we hear is I could never have a company yeah. and have a beautiful family and do this stuff because look at where I am. But it's that's not true. And I think what you're doing is so cool because it's what you're doing is offering hope. Like yeah. that's what this thing is seeing that is like, oh, this doesn't have to still be the way I operate. There's something different. There's something different. That's so cool. It's a real honor. I, I feel like I get to be part of something really, really special in the world. How can people 
whether it is buy your jewelry or just get involved with the mission that you are putting out there in the world? How do we just do all of those things? So purchasing the jewelry is a wonderful way to support our work. What happens when someone buys a piece of jewelry is you're not just getting something pretty that, you know, that that's supporting survivors, but our girls actually have the opportunity to make that piece, package that piece, ship that piece. And so um, the, the jewelry purchase is wonderful because it's a holistic way to to help support what we're doing. If you're someone who wants to get involved a little further, um, we also have a sponsor a survivor program where you can come alongside us and, and sponsor a survivor for either one day a month of employment, one week a, a month of employment, or a full month of employment. And that gives you the opportunity to really feel like you're a part of what we're doing in our mission. Um, we are a nonprofit 501c3, so those donations are tax deductible. And if you're someone who's looking at, at giving and wants to support anti-trafficking work and wants to support reintegration, that's a wonderful way to do that. But yeah, you can shop us at sanctuaryproject.com. You can learn all about giving and the sponsor survivor program at sanctuaryproject.com. And you can find us on Instagram, on social media at sanctuary underscore project. Okay, awesome. And then this is more of a question. I mean, it's for everybody, but specifically for me, if I want to learn just more about this in general, are there places I should go or I should look? I think there's some great resources with Exodus Cry. I love some of the resources they're putting out. There's also an organization in California called Saving Innocence that does a training on how to identify and work with trafficking survivors. Um, that's a really in-depth training that's that's a wonderful resource. Um, there's a, an international organization called A21 that also puts out some great resources that are specific to each region and country. And then the National Human Trafficking Hotline is, um, is the best resource if you are currently being being trafficked or know someone who's being trafficked, that would be the place to go. Okay. Amazing. Thank you. This was one, just a good conversation, but fascinating, super helpful for me. So I'm assuming it's going to be super helpful for a lot of people that hear it. And again, I love what you're doing. So thank you for doing this. Um, and thank you for being here. Yeah, this is a joy. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. 
around. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people, it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.